Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 14th, 2022, and in some ways, nothing changes. In some ways, everything changes. My uh, guest today is Albert Fox Khan. Uh, he was on the show about a year ago uh, talking about the civil rights implications of vaccine passports. Uh, Albert Fox Khan is a longtime crusader for privacy rights and individual rights, particularly pertaining to digital technology. And of course, in a way, everything's changed. We're less and less worried about vaccine passports today in, uh, cross my fingers, a post-COVID world. And yet, um, individual rights in our digital world of perhaps surveillance capitalism, if anything, are more profound. We live in an age, of course, today of a post-row world where lots and lots of talk is about how people um, are protecting their rights to privacy in an age where states can supposedly, in theory at least, prosecute people searching for abortion rights um, centers and other information online. So uh, I'm thrilled that uh, I wish, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm thrilled, of course, about a post-Row world, but I'm thrilled that Albert is joining me once again. Uh, Albert, uh, before we start, you are the founder and the executive director of STOP. Perhaps you might talk a little bit about what STOP Surveillance Technology Oversight Project is in the business of doing. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me back. And yes, I wish it was under less dystopian circumstances. Uh, so the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project is a New York-based you know, anti-surveillance group. We put it in the name and we're fighting against the ways that technology is expanding the power of state and local governments in particular with a real focus on the NYPD and other law enforcement. And the impetus for the group comes from my work as a you know long time New York activist, as a technologist, as a lawyer. And I saw this real unchecked growth in the power of local governments to use military grade surveillance tools to expand the authority and power they had in ways that people never really contemplated when they talked about uh, surveillance. And that's been true in the national security context. That's been true in when it comes to the way we uh, investigate everything from petty theft to international uh, criminal conspiracies. And sadly, increasingly in America, that is going to be the way we track and prosecute people who seek abortion care. So as I said, uh, we live in a post-Roe age, unfortunately. Bloomberg is asking whether it's legal to travel for abortion after Dobbs. Um, we had a lot of news today about the 10-year-old who was raped. Some people suggest national right to life, but this 10-year-old should have had the baby. I don't want to turn that into a conversation. We're not here to, to debate abortion rights, Albert, but we are here to talk about um, people's right to privacy in this age. How concerned are you, particularly in the context of big tech companies like Google, who we all use, of course, uh, to search for everything that's important in our life? 
Yeah, it's it's deeply alarming, and you know, regardless of what your feelings are on the you know decision in Dobbs, we should all be concerned by the growing power of police and prosecutors to you know track our every movement the the ways that we're you know really chipping away fundamentally at those few protections we have under the constitution so in 1973 when roe became the law of the land you know abortion was criminalized in many states but it, there were limitations on how those bans could be enforced limitations because People could travel out of state. They could seek abortion care secretly. They could avoid the detection of those who are enforcing the laws. And, you know, in 1973, Texas couldn't station a Texas ranger outside of every abortion clinic in New York. They still can't do that in 2022, but what they can do is harness and harvest the data that is you know, amassed by all of the tech companies we rely on using data from Google and Uber and Lyft and all of these other firms in order to reconstruct the movements of people who go out of state seeking healthcare. And in this way, we are approaching a truly unprecedented constitutional crisis, not just the criminalization of basic health care, but the application of those bans far beyond the state borders, using surveillance technology to really uh, you know, do something that would have never been conceivable when Roe was first decided. Uh, lots of headlines about Google, for example. I don't want to just make this a conversation about Google, but of course they are the, the dominant, unhealthily dominant search engine. Google say that they will delete user location for abortion clinic visits. Can they do this, Albert? And will they? Do you trust them? Oh, do I trust them? No. And here's the problem. This is a solution designed to get good publicity, not to protect privacy. If Google wanted to, they could stop storing data in a way where it's vulnerable to some of these abusive search tactics today. It wouldn't take, uh, it, it's something that we've seen countless other tech companies do. And Google's trying to have it both ways. They're trying both to hold on to the vast majority of the data that they collect, data that puts us at risk, data that can be co-opted by police through novel search tools that we can talk about like geofence warrants and keyword warrants. But what Google is trying to do is just narrowly carve out a bit of that data. Say, don't worry, we will delete it. There are many cases in which people are going to be seeking abortion care where Google will have no idea that that location is a healthcare provider. For people who are un operating underground facilities where it's illegal to have an abortion clinic, they're not about to advertise that on Google. How would Google even know? It's so this is less than a half measure it is too little too late and you know that's why you know my organization and so many other civil society groups join you know more than 40 members of congress when they called on google to simply stop storing this data not to not store it in a way where it could be harvested by law enforcement on this scale why are google proving to be obstinate on, on, on this matter, Albert. Is it because of their business model? You have to assume that the senior people at Google are no great fans of a post-row world either. I mean, their politics tend to be more progressive than conservative, especially when it comes to this issue. 
Oh, of course. And, and we've worked with partners at Google to improve their transparency around some of these abusive search tactics. So we helped lead a campaign that um, put pressure on Google to release a transparency report where they revealed how many geofence warrants they're receiving every year. Now, geofence warrants are particularly important here because that's... Explain, uh, yeah, explain because not everyone will know what a geofence warrant is. What does that mean? Exactly. So under a traditional warrant, you would go to a judge and say, I have probable cause to search one person and I want their data. That data could be, you know, their emails. It could be their location data. It could be any number of other things, but it's for one person and one person only. With a geofence warrant, police ask for the judge to force companies often Google, but it can be other companies as well, to hand over data for everyone within a specified area. And that area could be as small as a single room and as large as an entire city. And so what geofence warrants allow the police to do is literally draw out a shape on a map and then say, we want a digital dragnet for everyone in that space. Part of what is so frightening about this is that with a geofence warrant, you know, you have no idea how many people's information you'll seize at the time the court approves it, which violates... Thing, uh, Albert? It's, it's lo mostly lo state government. We're talking about states like Texas or Florida or other states that are, are looking for data about young women in particular, uh, searching for information on abortion providers. Well, geofence warrants are, have been used in any manner of case. Right, you know, in, in, in this particular context in our conversation yeah. about search engines and mm -hmm. uh, post-row abortion data. Yeah. So we know, for example, that Texas was the number two state in the country for geofence warrants. Again, that was for all types of crimes. But now they could use that power to force Google to identify everyone within a clinic, everyone within a facility. And yes, Google is saying it'll delete some of that data now, but it still becomes a powerful tactic. Similarly, with another type of warrant called a keyword warrant, police can force a Google or another search engine to identify every person who searched for a specific term. It could be methoprestone or another abortion-inducing agent. It could be the address of an abortion clinic. And this is, again, a digital dragnet that you know is really uh, chilling because of the way it allows police to identify the people who are pregnant in the first place. Because in a post-Row America, increasingly we'll see you know, people going to great lengths to hide their pregnancy status, going to great lengths to make sure police don't see that. And these will become some of the tools that can be used by law enforcement to do that. And the reason why Google is taking these half measures given the fact that they have, you know, generally progressive politics, given the fact that a lot of the executives oppose the repeal of Roe, the only conceivable explanation is simply their bottom line. They would lose billions if they deleted the data that is going to be used by police. Could we expect in the Google case, and I don't want to just make this a conversation about Google, mm -hmm. but could we expect in the Google case for this to trigger significant unrest within Google itself, because uh, this is a company like some of the other giants of Silicon Valley that's been racked by civil discord, particularly between senior management 
and some of its younger star. I expect this is going to be a recurring point of tension, not just within Google, but across the industry, because we're going to see you know, this tension, a tension that's existed for years, the question between collecting as much data as possible to monetize it and, you know, just make as many profits as you can on the one hand, and then the civil rights risk and the privacy risk on the other hand, that that's always been a point of tension. That's always been something that, that companies have had to wrestle with. And it's going to become much more intense, not just at Google, but companies like Uber and Lyft, which collect huge amounts of location data. It will be true for social media networks, which have to wrestle with what sort of abortion content they continue to allow on their sites when that content is deemed illegal by some states. And, you know, soon we'll be in a position where, you know, giving medically accurate information about abortion will be criminalized as aiding and abetting. Uh, abortion in some jurisdictions. So we're really rapidly heading towards a place where many states will be co-opting these technical platforms as much as they can, and companies will have to decide just how vulnerable they're willing to let themselves be to these sorts of authoritarian tactics. So it seems like we're seeing the marriage, a dystopian marriage between surveillance capitalism and Orwell's 1984, are you suggesting that ultimately these companies, these large companies, Uber, Lyft, uh, the social networks, Facebook, of course, and Google, that they, they're going to have to push back? Is it up to them? Is the ball in their court? Well, there's a lot that these companies can do on their own to win back consumer trust. I mean, and it's not just the usual suspects. It's even companies like Apple. You know, Apple uh, allows police to get huge amounts of our data if uh, officers have a court order because of the way they've set up iCloud. You know, police may not be able to break the encryption on many uh iPhones, but if they give Google a court order for a backup on iCloud, suddenly they're in. And so we're really going to see a lot of pressure for companies to redesign their data collection practices. But I also think we're going to see mass mobilization and political engagement on this topic in a way we haven't uh, before. Because, you know, I, I'm thinking of... Um, a quote from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, where she said that the national symbol for America should be the pendulum, because when we swing very far in one direction, we inevitably swing back. And the reason we swing back is because of the power of the people to you know, mobilize and vocalize against these sorts of abuses. So I, I, I am convinced that this is an existential threat. It is a dark moment but we're going to see just truly unprecedented levels of opposition and a lot of work on the ground to, to outlaw these abuses and restore some protections. Albert, you mentioned earlier that some tech companies are doing it right. Are there models for addressing this? Are there models for more um, responsible transparency in terms of what and how these, what, what and what and how these companies give up their users' data? Oh, definitely. So there's a spectrum of protections. And, you know, it depends on the product. It depends on exactly the threat. But, you know, for search engine data, for example, you know, companies like DuckDuckGo simply don't collect the data that police would 
uh, want if they served one of these keyword warrants. You know, you could go to them and demand that DuckDuckGo identify every single user who searched for X or Y, and the company would say, sorry, you're out of luck. We don't keep that data. And that's the thing, like companies will face jail time. Their leaders will face jail time if they refuse to comply with a court order to hand over data they have, but they're not required to collect this data in the first place. You know, we also see companies that are you know, uh, having true end-to-end -end encryption because one problem that we see is that a lot of companies promise that their content is encrypted, but in fact, there are backdoors. So for example, the Swiss file sharing company Trezorit, they have end-to-end -end encryption and only the user holds onto the keys which means that if they get a court order to hand over users' data, again, they simply have no way technically to comply. Where on the other side, if Google or Apple or any of these other firms, Dropbox, get a, a court order, well, suddenly they are handing over all of your data because you know if a company has the power to reset your password, if they have the power to decrypt your data, they can decrypt it for law enforcement, not just for you. So what advice, Albert, would you give somebody listening to this who doesn't want law, the law authorities, local authorities to have any access to their online behavior? Is it using these encryption services? Is it giving up uh, the big data companies like Google and perhaps even Apple and Facebook? Well, when we look at the forms of self-help out there, the sort of technical protections, it's harm reduction. You know, we're, we're, we're taking known vulnerabilities and making them less acute, but none of these protections, none of these, you know, forms of encryption are a true substitute for a constitutional right to safely access abortion. But some of the things that, you know, we at STOP and, you know, a, a groups like um, Electronic Frontier Foundation uh, and, and others are always advocating include, you know, moving away from unencrypted uh, communications platforms like, you know, email and uh, text messages to things like Signal, which include more secure encryption. And when you're communicating about a highly sensitive subject using, you know, uh, self-deleting messages on Signal as well. I mean, that is no guarantee that someone won't take a screenshot or preserve that message in some form, but it provides less of electronic trail. It includes reducing the amount that people post on social media or leaving those platforms completely. It includes, you know, disabling your phone or ideally leaving it at home completely when going to a sensitive site. Uh, it means having a second device that you can use for secure communications that isn't connected to any of your existing accounts. You know, um, but all of these things are, are again, they're ways of dealing with uh, some of the low-hanging fruit, but none of them are perfect. Take, for example, um, our I IP address. A lot of people know that if you, you know, use a VPN, a virtual private network, you can mask the IP address of your web browser. But there are lots of other ways to identify someone's web browser. And also, you don't know for sure if your VPN is selling your data or uh, handing it over to the government. So, you know, really just trying to 
to look at every incremental step you take, whether it's you know switching from a VPN to something like Tor, which uses multiple servers to make it even harder for someone to track your IP address, using uh, you know computers that uh, separate computers using all of these forms of encryption, all of those can help harden yourself against that sort of surveillance. But really, uh, n there is no one magic bullet. Speaking of magic bullets, Albert, um, you focus on the United States in your work at Stop, but this is the kind of conversation that one would normally associate with Putin's Russia or Xi's China or contemporary Iran, but not the United States. In your mind, is this post-Row landscape, this legal, this complicated legal landscape of surveillance, capitalism, digital surveillance in America? Is it making America increasingly like China and Russia? I mean, I think that it's just highlighting a truth that's been there for years, that when you look at the you know spectrum of countries out there, sure, we always like to hold up China and Russia as somehow being the most grotesque examples of mass surveillance. But we are oftentimes a lot closer to them in our policies and practices than we are to rights protective countries in Europe and you know other OECD member states. So I, I do think that you know it can oftentimes you know distract us from the just sheer volume of mass surveillance here in the U.S. to 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 focus on the you know unique abuses that we see from the Chinese government. Yes, you know we see China using surveillance to facilitate a genocide, using surveillance to, you know, commit atrocities on a just truly staggering scale. But that, but when we constantly focus on that as our point of comparison, we can lose sight of just how unrecognizable America has become in 2022, that the scale of surveillance we've incrementally come to accept at this point it would have seemed like a work of science fiction when I was a kid. It would have seemed like a cautionary tale of an authoritarian nation to have a place where nearly anyone can be tracked to at nearly any time, where our lives are so uh, exposed to the highest bidder and to any police agency that wants it. That, to me, is not a society that is consistent with democracy, that's consistent with free thought, with free will, with, you know, truly the openness that we think of in a constitutional republic. And so I just always worry that, you know, we are much worse off than the vast majority of people realize. Albert, how much more chilling can it become, particularly with the use of AI? Uh, which um, billions of dollars of investment are going into in terms of making sense of this and predicting uh, movements and actions before we even make them. How worried are you with the use of AI in this new surveillance architecture that you're fighting at STOP? Yeah, well, as someone who, um, you know, my, my first degree was in philosophy, and I think a lot about human autonomy and what it means to have a moral society. And when you look at the proposed uses of AI, it not only is chilling and invasive, but 
if it lit if it lived up to the sales pitch it would be something that really fundamentally you know remade you know free will as we know it now thankfully a lot of the ai that's being sold today is much more sales pitch than science. So there are a lot of the uh, products that are being sold to municipalities for supposed smart cities applications are ineffective, are, are error prone, are really rather crude. And what we see is that a lot of these systems, rather than predicting the future, are actually just able to replicate the mistakes of the past, whether that's you know biased policing or segregated education or other forms of injustice, because these systems, you know, machine learning systems in particular, you know, are just being trained on the mistakes that humans have made before. And then through neural networks are able to then make the same types of mistakes going forward. So I, I think that right now, those failures, those limitations, those technical uh, barriers are, are stopping the sort of mass surveillance of governmental AI that, that many in industry would hope. But I, I do worry that one day the technology will get good enough that it will be adopted widely enough that we will end up living in a state where, you know, almost every decision that's made for us, made about us, is made through automation in a way that we can't see, we can't appeal, and we can't fight, you know, and, and that idea of the un, you know, uh, untransparent government, the government that we can't uh, push back against, that to me is terrifying. Albert, you suggested that the fix for this is for the, the giants of Silicon Valley, the Googles, of this world to rethink their business models. At what point does uh, this become uh, unavoidable, the kind of surveillance dictatorship that you're fighting against? At what point might it even be beyond the reform of a company like Google? I don't think it's, well, first off, I, I think that Google can, do a lot to minimize the harms that its own products are f uh, creating. But these companies can never fix this problem completely. You know, not only are there an array of other um, data brokers and uh, surveillance firms trying to harvest this data and collect it in other ways, but, you know, government agencies increasingly have the capability to uh, directly collected themselves. So, but what I think we uh, companies can do is slow down the growth of a lot of these sorts of abuses. And I don't think we're ever going to reach the point where it's unsolvable because at the end of the, the day, it's not the technology that chooses our destiny. That's a democratic choice. That's a political choice. That's a choice we make at the ballot box. And, you know, I think that the worse these abuses become, the more the public will push back against it. And it may get very bad before it gets better, but I don't think that there's ever going to be a situation where the technology makes the choice for us. Albert, uh, you mentioned DuckDuckGo earlier, the um, anti-surveillance search engine, which always comes up in these kinds of conversations. If we had a rep from big tech on the show, my guess is they would say something like, well, Albert's exaggerating. He's describing worst case scenarios, which are incredibly rare. And besides, if anyone really cared, they'd all go and use DuckDuckGo, which they don't. Most people simply 
don't care about these issues uh, and go on about their daily lives. How would you respond to that kind of pushback? Again, uh, I, I'm guessing because I've, I've had shows where we've had uh, representatives of big tech on that usually is their kind of argument. Well, I mean, when consumers had the choice, they overwhelmingly chose to use leaded gasoline until we outlawed it. They have chosen to buy dangerous products that were later banned. The entire reason we have civil rights and consumer protection laws is because a free market can't be left to decide the fate of a democracy. And when we're talking about fundamental rights, it, it really, yeah, consumers find surveillance capitalism convenient, but they may not know, they cannot know how that information will be used against them in a court of law, not six months later, a year later. And, and this is the problem. You know, you know, I, I think that the sometimes the best analogy to a lot of these products is big tobacco. You know, we saw for decades that Americans chose to smoke. They chose to smoke because they didn't understand just how deadly it could be to light up. Well, people are choosing to use Google searches. They're choosing to put all of their data on cloud platforms. They're choosing to offload so much of their cognitive life into these devices without protection. And yeah, it's convenient. It can even be addictive, but it's definitely not safe. It might not be, but people will say, well, people are choosing to, to to do the trade-off. They get the Google search engine for free. And one of the quote-unquote costs is the vulnerability of their data. But when, when or if a search engine charged $10, $15 a month for its use, no one would use it. So isn't ultimately the problem in the consumer's court if we need paid search engines, perhaps, which guarantee that people's data won't be examined? Well, I don't think we should ever make privacy a luxury, but, and more importantly, I, I think we're about to see a real wake-up call. Yeah, people have been complacent about the way their data is used and abused for decades, but we're seeing more and more examples of how it can just truly be dangerous to those who put their information on these platforms, the ways that it can be abused. And so I don't think that we can assume that forever people will be willing to make this same arbitrage, that they're going to be willing to trade off, you know, the, the most uh, essential sorts of, of rights just to, to save a few bucks a month. But even if consumers don't make that choice, Again, I, I don't think we should be in a situation where people are just clicking away the most fundamental rights. I don't think that leads to a society that any of us would want. Finally, Albert, um, you, you seem to have two messages. On the one hand, support groups like yours stop who are fighting big tech, fighting local government. On the other hand, choose online services and platforms um, which protect our data, which is more important? I, I think that the larger fight for systemic protections is the most important part because 
as long as we make it an individual choice whether to have these protections and rely on people to go out of their way to sort of uh, evade the surveillance that is increasingly impossible to avoid, not only are we going to you know, create massive barriers to true privacy protections, but we're going to often meet, make a, a situation where those who are most at risk, who are most vulnerable, who are most marginalized, who have the fewest resources to invest in these sorts of privacy protections, that they're the ones who are going to have the most data collected, even though they're most at risk. That's one of the things that I think is most perverse about the consumer choice theory of civil rights is that oftentimes it means that only the most powerful and the most privileged are truly protected. You'd think this was going to become a huge political issue. It's always in these kinds of conversations, people always say, well, it's about to become a huge issue, but a major politician needs to embrace this. So this hasn't happened yet. It's hard to imagine it in the 2024 election. Are you in any way optimistic that perhaps a progressive politician might embrace these issues and make them the defining feature of their candidacy? I have never seen public engagement on these issues on the scale I do now. Look, I, I started worrying about these sorts of surveillance issues when I was very young. Like, I remember being a 12-year-old activist who tinkered with computers on the side and was completely terrified by the ways that I could see these technologies being abused. And flashing forward to today, seeing this becoming an everyday issue, seeing this become something that everyone is talking about, to me, this is part of the way that we galvanize and uh, the broader public, because this is something that already is top of mind. And we already see, you know, elected officials making demands about uh, data protection. We see Elizabeth Warren introducing a bill. We see, you know, Senator Ron Wyden and, you know, having, you know, more than 40 members of Congress call on Google to delete this data. We've seen so much more leadership on these issues than would have seemed possible just a few years ago and even more so at the state and local level. So, hey, as as grim as all of this sounds, I truly am optimistic that that this is part of the path to a more private future. It just takes a lot of work to get there.